So, uh, lovely to see you all this evening. This question says, in Ajahn Sumato's book, The Way It Is, he talks about practicing the four Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, sympathetic joy, compassion and equanimity. I decided to learn more and read a sutta from Morris Walsh's Thus Have I Heard. Here the Buddha said, practicing the Brahma-viharas leads to union with Brahma. Have you any knowledge about what union with Brahma is meant to mean? Well, what comes to my mind and, uh, when I read that is that, uh, well, first I suppose I should say I don't know what Morris is really referring to. Um, when he says that it leads to union with Brahma. I can't say I know what he's really talking about. But what does come to my mind is that the cultivation of what we call the four Brahma-viharas or the divine abidings, loving-kindness, sympathetic joy, compassion, equanimity, what we're, what we're doing when we exercise, when we cultivate these abidings, is establishing ourselves in a, direct, unobstructed relationship with this capacity that we have, this ability that we have in the heart to be this way. Now, sometimes people will approach this, like practicing loving kindness, it's like trying to become more loving. You know, the idea of I'm not loving enough and I've got to become more loving or become more compassionate or, or something, or more equanimous. And there's, a, of course, there's some relative value to that, but when it gets down to actually practicing these qualities, we've got to let go of the, any image of ourselves as being anything other than what we are, like practicing cultivating compassion. What, we have to, what we're working about, what we're looking for, is how to just be compassionate in the moment. And so what being compassionate in the moment means is empathizing with the suffering of living beings in a completely non-judgmental way or exercising loving-kindness, cultivating metta bhavana, loving-kindness. What we're doing in this effort is, is not trying to be, become some image of ourselves that's much more loving, but actually being in that moment, in this moment, totally unconditioned in our receptivity or in our acceptance of ourselves. So when we talk about cultivating these Brahma-viharas, the, the formula the Buddha gave is we always start with ourselves. And may I be well. And you know, we, we do the chanting after the meditation. May I abide in well-being, and then may all beings be well. And the traditional formula is starting with ourselves and then starting with our friends and then moving on to our enemies and then moving on to we include all beings in all realms of existence. And so starting with ourselves, being loving, being compassionate with ourselves as we find ourselves. And so I understand that, well it suggests to me that union with Brahma means reuniting with that within us that can be loving, that can be this way, that can be loving, can be compassionate, can be empathetic in our relationship with others' well-being, and can be equanimous. And this is, this is terribly important, because if we don't exercise in this way, then even though this potential is there, this capacity is there for being this way, we can suffer under the deluded notions that somehow we're lacking that was, you know, I've, I'm, I'm short on this. I've been shortchanged. I don't have enough love or enough compassion. I've got to go do something to get it. Whereas what we're encouraged to do, and if we, if we understand this training appropriately, what we discover is that 
We can be this way. We have this power already. We have this power. We have the power to be loving. We have the power to be completely receptive of ourselves as we find ourselves. But it does mean that we have to let go of the idea of becoming a new, improved idea of ourselves. So with loving-kindness meditation, we start with just as I am, this way, right now, with all my weaknesses, all my limitations, all my failings, all my history, all my problems, all my worries and anxieties, I accept myself completely, fully, 100%, just like this. That's the practice. And as we exercise this and the various ways of doing it, and I'm sure you're familiar with using visualizations and, and so on, if we do it in an embodied way, not just a mental exercise, but we do it here and now, embodied way, then we come across the ability that was always there, but unrecognized. And it's a tremendous realization when we find out that we can be compassionate. And maybe for a lot of people, myself included, when I started off the Buddhist path of practice and trying to practice loving kindness for myself, didn't work. There's too much of me that I really didn't like at all. And no way I could just accept myself and say, may I be well, because I, I thought I was a pretty wretched character. I've been taught that way and I believed it. And, but what I did find I could do was practice compassion. May I be free from suffering. May all beings be free from suffering. Because I knew what suffering was. I'd forgotten what being loving was, but I knew what suffering was. And so May I be free from suffering. I knew what it was like to suffer, and I could imagine my dear friends, people who I liked a lot, suffering. And when I imagined them suffering, then immediately the heart gave rise to this natural, beautiful, warm feeling of, may they be free from suffering. May my friends not suffer. And it's a wonderful and totally natural capacity that we all have. So even in the midst of suffering... Like I remember a year or so ago in the middle of the winter I got one of those terrible flus that, that come around and and one night I was just writhing in bed with horrendous headaches and and fevers and sure I was going to die any minute. I'm hopeless when I get sick. <laughs> Total hypochondria. This isn't flu, this is terminal. <laughs> well, somehow what I managed to do, I don't know what prompted it, but somehow I... I spread my thoughts out to, re- to think of all the other sick people on the planet. And somehow that, that, that released me out of this self-obsession, this, this knot of being caught up in, in poor me. And what came out was actually, well, there's a lot of people around a lot sicker than me, and that, that feeling of connectedness or empathy with others in the context of suffering is compassion. And so to discover that we have this ability as with uh, so many other things in the Buddhist training. that We can set out on the path of practice uh, with great aspirations for, for liberation and freedom and enlightenment and, and so on. But as we proceed on this path, we, we have to make very sure that we're really well informed and aware about our, where our strength lies. Because we are going to come across difficulties yeah. If you take the uh, metaphors I often like to do of, of mountain climbing, you know, you're going to come, if it's a serious mountain and a serious climb, you're going to come across some tricky uh, turns on that mountain, and you're going to be tested. The weather can change, you know, the fog can come down, and you can lose your strength, and lose the oxygen, whatever. You've got to know to where to turn to get strength, and it's just the same in the spiritual life. You know there are going to be things come to us, whether it's emotional challenges or personal loss, grief that comes, sickness and old age and death, which comes to all of us. These challenging periods in our life where we feel really tested, we need to prepare ourselves to know very well where our strengths lie, where can we turn. Remember when my father was visiting me, my mother and father came to visit me from New Zealand and I was really looking forward to it. They were staying with friends of mine in, in London, in Hampstead, and uh, my father promptly had a brain hemorrhage. And great, that was very convenient, I must say. It took ages for them to get it together to come over here, and it's a big deal coming at that age all the way from New Zealand. And 
So it was a huge disappointment for my father, obviously, but also even, I think even more so for my mother, and what to do. And so I went up to London and trying to help them out as best as I could, but, you know, pretty limited, getting around looking like this and not having any money. And so I, I'm fortunate that my good friends uh, were able to offer them a very good accommodation and, and the woman, the, the wife there, was a doctor and, it was still a very unpleasant and difficult circumstance. And where do I turn? What do I do? And I, I found trying to set meditation at the time really difficult. But I'd learned some chants. And I found being able to chant, for instance, the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta, which is a very long chant, and the Buddha's first discourse, being able to chant this, sitting there was, uh, it wasn't a very, it was, I was living in the garage at the time and I'm feeling pretty sorry for myself, but finding strength in that. Somehow the chanting connected me with something, with my feeling of belonging to a sangha, to a community of monks and nuns. But that's just one example. And Cultivating the Brahma-viharas is another way of preparing ourselves so that we know what our abilities are. Or also just being mindful of, of things like uh, our ability to be generous or to be patient or to keep moral precepts. When uh, monks go off in Tudong in the forests in, in Asia, in Thailand, it's one of the uh, instructions that monks are traditionally given that if you go off to the jungle, you know, serious, wild, dangerous places to test your practice, if you get to a point of, of uh, where fear comes up and overwhelms you, you can't concentrate on your breath or your meditation object or whatever it is, and what you do is you stop and reflect on your commitment to integrity. And what good is that going to do to me? You know, thinking about how well I keep my precepts. Well, in theory, we may not be able to convince ourselves that it does much good for us. But in practice, the heart loves to reflect on such things. You know, to just stop and reflect, oh right, I have the capacity to restrain myself that I could have actually done that or said that, and I didn't. We connect, what we actually connect with is our own inner deep strength, and that shores us up. And it may not be something that we necessarily would arrive at through thinking, but Dhamma practice has got to be, uh, take us beyond thinking. So finding ways of uh, reflecting on our virtue, there's a big part of the spiritual life. Sometimes maybe we've been, for many of us, we've been brought up to uh, not think about how good we are. Now, of course, there's the obvious difficulty. If you dwell on our thoughts of how good we are, we get all full of ourselves and, and get around and become totally obnoxious. And as we've talked about many times before, that the, the last gesture of the day of dedicating punya, giving the any punya, any wholesome accumulations that may have arisen as a result of our practice today, to give these away as a conscious gesture is a very skillful, wonderful thing to do. During last weekend's Easter retreat, we made a point every evening of doing this practice together. And I myself, every evening, last thing before I go to bed, I go through this ritual of dedicating the punya. And I, you may have seen, or you probably have seen many times that when the, uh, the Asian Buddhists come to the monastery and they make acts of generosity, practice dana, and then during the chanting, the, the anamodana, the acknowledgement of, of um, goodness that has been generated, they'll pour water from one container into another container. And, and this symbolizes the giving away or the sharing of blessings. And I myself, I do this every evening. I do it with a, two containers of pouring water from one container to another, as a concrete gesture, and this, the form makes it very conscious. It helps, you know, I can think these things, may the goodness of my practice today be dedicated to it, which is actually, that's good in itself. However, when we've got a form of actually doing something, pouring water, seeing the flowing of the water, hearing it, feeling it every evening, really potentizes uh, this practice of generosity, of giving away. And really generosity is, I think, generosity, the value of generosity cannot be overstated. 
In fact, it's, I think it's fair enough to say it's the foundation of all Buddhist practice, all spiritual practice. The classic, the classic presentation of the Buddha's teachings, um, as many of you will have already heard before, is dana sila bhavana, uh, generosity, morality, and cultivating the heart, or meditation, bhavana. And sometimes, uh, in fact, usually, for many of us, it happens that we, we start at the far end, and the, well, the bhavana is what interests us. In fact, when Ajahn Chah went to America and taught at IMS and, and various other places, and he came back, and I was in Thailand when he came back, and he gave a talk there, and he said, oh, you know, when you're talking to those Americans and those English people, you don't want to start talking about generosity and, and moral, moral precepts, because you do, they just yawn and go to sleep. So you talk about bhavana first, because that's what they're interested in, how to directly cultivate the mind. But he said the interesting thing is that once they start to get a hang on cultivating the mind, well then they become interested in morality because they see that if they don't keep the moral precepts it disturbs the mind and then they become interested in generosity. Whereas in Thailand, he said, in Thailand we always talk about dana, sila, bhavana. In America you talk about bhavana, sila, dana. But it doesn't really matter. Wherever we start, wherever we find our inspiration uh, to pick up the Buddhist path of practice accurately and appropriately, we do need to appreciate that there are these three aspects and, and that generosity underpins all of it. Because with generosity, the form of cultivating generosity, dana, the form is, is giving things. Yeah. We, we give things like, like today, Richard gave or offered this utterly scrumptious meal. I shouldn't, you know, say, I'm not supposed to talk about things being delicious or not, but it was. It was a seriously good meal this morning. And uh, beautifully offered, and as a last gesture before he heads off to India. And then we dedicate the blessings uh, uh, after the offering. And so there's the giving of, of food or giving of support, and the, the giving to charity, the actual giving of money or of possessions, uh, is this way of giving. But then there's also the offering that we do ritualistically when we offer candles and incense and flowers to the shrine. Or we also, as we bow, when we bow, those are the forms, but the spirit of offering, the spirit of offering is not just giving of material things, but it's really giving a little bit of ourselves. It's letting go of a little bit of me and mine. That's what we're really doing. And as with, like, for instance, the cultivation of renunciation, and which is another virtue, it's not the things we let go of, for instance, as monks, you know, because we don't eat in the evening, big deal, you know, or go dancing. Or these, you know, there's, who is it who's playing in Newcastle tonight? Take that, is it? Yeah, right, beginning the, the concert in Newcastle tonight. Well, I heard some of you would rather be there than here, but you didn't know the concert was on. And, and uh, <laughs> I don't know whether take that is really worth listening to, but... Giving up take that a concert is... Did I say something wrong? <laughs> it's, it's okay to give up these things, but actually I'm getting distracted. The, uh, <laughs> should we talk about the dead? <laughs> it's not the things we give up that's important, but it's the ability to give up. That's what renunciation... People often make a mistake with looking at renunciation practices and think that somehow giving up chocolate for Lent or something is a big deal or giving up meat on Fridays, or, or, or giving up eating in the evening, or so on. Giving, being celibate, these things. It's not what we give up that matters, but it's the ability to give up. That's, it's that, you know, that strength to know that I can let go of something that, that usually captures my passion. But likewise, with, uh, with the cultivation of dana parameter, or, or cultivating generosity, it's not the things that we give, but it's it's the ability to let go of me and mine because we all know that one of the main reasons we suffer is because of me and mine. Me and my possessions and, and, and things that I have to worry about, me and my body, you know, getting old and you know, all of us now are getting a little bit older and who knows how far death is away and, and how we feel about that. You know, what is the problem? I mean, death is obviously the most natural thing that could ever occur to anything that's born. And that's not our experience. 
we, we don't feel very comfortable about it. Why? Because of that habit that we experience as me and mine, the habit of grasping. When I say the habit of me, it's because there isn't anything called me. Any of us, all of us have been meditating for a while and realized that me is a, is a pattern, a habit of grasping, performed so regularly that we get a feeling of meanness. But if you really investigate and you look in there, you can't find a solid, substantial me. There's this pattern, there's this apparition, there's this... It's like a, it's like a, um, a mirage on a desert. It looks like water, but it doesn't matter how fast you run after it, it's never going to quench your thirst. It's just, it's just the way light reflects and looks like water. Well, likewise, the uninformed experience of, of the sense realm gives us the appearance of there is solid meanness there. And we keep grasping it and hoping that gratifying me and my desires is going to really make me happy. But we've all done it for years, and here I am still getting unhappy and frustrated. And because we've all got an intuition into, into this, we're, we're willing to actually trust in what the Buddha said and practice letting go of me and mine. Not because from the perspective of me it feels good, but from a deeper intuition and the faith that is born out of that intuition, it feels good. And so then we have the practice of cultivating generosity. So the forms of generosity, the forms of practicing dana, are varied and many, but the point of it is not what we give, but the fact that we give and the ability to exercising that capacity, exercising that ability that we have to instead of grasp, to release. And, and we can do it in any situation. Any situation. We're in. And the more we do it, and then we reflect on it, we feel good. If you, there's something the Buddha said, when you've done a good deed, happiness arises from reflecting on it. And this is a wholesome sort of happiness. Yeah. And it's good to reflect on it. Now, if the happiness arises, then we grasp the happiness and we become puffed up and overpleased with ourselves. Well, that, of course, is, is spoiling the goodness. Yeah. That's, like, uh, that's like doing the washing and then dropping it on the ground. You, know, you do the washing and hang it out on the line and, and then you just drop it on the ground and it will get dirty again. It's a, it's a pity, really. Yeah. But that doesn't mean to say we shouldn't do the washing. So likewise with cultivating virtue, for instance, cultivating goodness, of generosity. We do it, and we reflect on it, and we feel good, but then the feeling good we let go of also. And so whatever situation we're in, we can, uh, we can exercise this, we can cultivate this. And so in a married relationship, you know, people start off feeling great about each other, and I dedicate my whole life to you, and and, uh, and they're sure that it's going to last forever, but any of you, or probably most of you who have been married, realize that it doesn't last forever. You know, there are a few little intermissions. <laughs> moments of doubt arise, and, uh, hmm, what happened here? So, well, if we have a, a spiritual foundation in our lives, we don't just go for refuge to the feeling of disappointment and disillusionment and sue for divorce and find another partner, but rather we take that experience of, of disappointment and the, the, the sense of loss of togetherness and harmony and concord and beauty. We take it and we restrain ourselves. We exercise patience until we can learn what we need to learn from it, which is basically nearly always it's the case of one of us, if not both of us, are hanging on to mine, me and mine, what I want. Yeah. Too much, too hard, too firmly. In a committed marriage relationship, there's got to be cooperation. There's got to be an ability to let go. And often it's the case that in a relationship where there's been pain as a result of some misunderstanding or some fracture in a relationship, that the way to heal it is by giving. Yeah. Because giving is it's not what's given, again, but what it's symbolized. And when, when you receive a gift from somebody, if we receive it in a feeling way, if we really feel the gift that's been received, not just looking at what they give you, you know, sometimes this happens, and I know in my own experience, I, I've, I've, I've offered something to someone and said, oh, I don't need that, thanks very much. <laughs> well, <laughs> it wasn't actually what I was giving that was important. Uh, it was the gesture of giving that was the point. And so when we, likewise with receiving, 
if we receive what somebody is offering, they're really offering themselves. And that's when the healing and the relationship can begin. To be mindful of that is, uh, is very important in, in committed relationship. Likewise in community, monastic community. There's always an opportunity for giving. And if, if we understand this principle and we, we offer ourselves into it, and that's the training, and we do the training in the body, when we bow, what are we doing when we bow? We're not, we don't believe that that bronze image up there is going to do favors for us. But when we bow to it, we really surrender ourselves. We're offering ourselves to the way, to the truth, to reality, to this possibility of perfect wisdom and perfect compassion. We trust this is a possibility for human beings. And so we surrender ourselves to this. We, if I want to protect myself, defend myself, I stand upright and puff my chest out and do my alpha male thing, you know, like King Kong. <laughs> this is me, king of the world, and you know, I can handle everything. But actually, all of us know that we can't, and so we, we learn to willingly surrender ourselves, and this ritual gesture of bowing down, and as the Chinese Mahayana tradition, as they, also as they bow down, the hands come down, and then they open up their hands as well. And a very beautiful gesture of complete self-surrender to that which we trust is real. And so uh, in monastic life, this is um, very much the training, the commitment we have to do. And, and it pays off as the years go by. When, when Every time you exercise this ability, you get into a more direct Connection with that uh, that strength within you. In the beginning, maybe we don't see these things. I know, in the early years of my training, the idea of bowing was something I was thoroughly uncomfortable with. It took a long time to really learn how to just relax my solar plexus and do a full bow. And when I could learn to do it, I felt very grateful. In the early years, also of of uh, building our monasteries in this country. When I first came over and was living at Chithurst, we used to work regularly, 12 hours a day, six days a week, sometimes even seven days a week. And they were, what about my meditation? Me and my meditation, my progress on the path of enlightenment. And there were some people who complained about it, and they were, they were the unhappy ones. But for most people there, it was a wonderful time. It was a really wonderful time. Because you could forget about yourself. You just do what needed to be done. And that's the act of, of generosity. The situation is this. We've got this great big old mock Tudor mansion that's riddled with dry rot. Terrible mess. We've got to work hard to repair it. Tremendous amount of work we had to do. And I used to stay in a room that was quite a bit smaller than the toilet over there by the library. And one day which I was, my job was taking the old lead paint off the walls and polyfilling it and then painting it and I used to just push the tins aside at night and lie down to go to sleep and that was basically what we did in those days and and there was a wonderful feeling about that because basically what we're doing was forgetting me and my way and just responding to what needs to happen and with the cultivation of generosity that's that's the result that we, don't, we learn to not take me and my way so seriously. And it's wonderful. The energy flows more. From my perspective, it feels like, oh, I'm losing something. I'm losing a grip on my practice. And, you know, what about my progress? And, and so on. And this morning, I, um, it's a beautiful, beautiful morning this morning. And I don't know how many of you were doing what I was doing. I was sitting out in the sun here. We got the Forest Sunken Newsletter through the post the other day. And I was reading that interview with uh, Sisters Ananda Bodhi and Tita Meda. If you haven't read it, it's lovely. It's worth reading. And they, they went on a two-month tudong last summer through Wales. Sister Tita Meda, uh, a very well-established nun living in Chittas these days, a Russian woman. She was a doctor and came over here. And she's been training now for, for quite a few years uh, at Amarwati in Chittas. And Anyway, she was commenting in an interview. She, we didn't do very much meditation not as much as we do when we're in the monastery, because we were walking all day long, you know, walking with blisters and sometimes bare feet and sometimes not much food, sometimes too much food, and 
sleeping out in fields and getting covered with ticks and like they were doing. But she was saying, she said, the interesting thing was that after a few days or weeks of this practice, the mind settled into the most wonderful samadhi, the most wonderful tranquility and calm. And even when I got back to the monastery, she was saying, the calm stayed with me. It didn't disappear. She said, usually when I sit on meditation retreat and I can get some sort of samadhi, as soon as the retreat finishes, well, so does the samadhi. Get back into talking and activity again and that tranquility of mind disappears. However, the tranquility that came when she was just giving herself into what she was doing, which in this case was just walking with the other senior nun, meeting people and doing what they were doing, it took her to a place of self-surrender that actually was more sustainable. So really this is the spirit of generosity. And when we practice generosity, exercising this capacity we have to let go of ourselves, to forget ourselves in the right way. Today is St. George's Day and Her Majesty's 80th birthday yesterday, I think, or maybe the day before. Anyway, the Dean of Windsor uh, gave a sermon today to Her Majesty in uh, the chapel in Windsor Castle and uh, apparently commented on what a wonderful example it was that Her Majesty had set of forgetting herself, of self-forgetting, of self-sacrifice. And, and I think there's a very important point to make. It does need to be looked into because the virtue of forgetting ourselves if it's not rightly understood, can take us to a place of being against ourselves, ignoring ourselves. And so, as I started off by saying and talking about the cultivation of the four Brahma Viharas, we start our spiritual practice, we start the spiritual exercise, by learning to love ourselves fully. And so when we forget ourselves, it's forgetting our self-obsession that is encouraged not forgetting ourselves because we don't care about ourselves. It's tremendously important to realize that it all begins here. If we don't take care of this, then who is going to take care of this? And there are many aspects of this that are not so tidy. And so what the Buddha encouraged was, was the cultivation of mindfulness that brings about a complete receptivity and self-trust it's another very important uh, ability we have which we can exercise. And this is what the, actually the second stage of practice is dana and sila. You know, sila, the forms of, the form of, of keeping moral precepts, uh, looks like basically we're just behaving ourselves. Don't go drinking, don't go nicking stuff, and don't tell lies, or we'll go around killing and so on. And, on the level of form, what it looks like is, oh, this is, you know, well-behaved people. But the spirit, the experience of living within the moral precepts, the five moral precepts, is, is what? And we all have impulses, unless there's any angels in the room. The rest of us have impulses sometimes to break the moral precepts, to maybe, you know, exaggerate or be a little deceitful or take advantage of a situation, be abusive in some way, if it's not other, other people of ourselves or the planet. And if we have these impulses and we're cultivating the precepts, what we do is, at the moment where the impulse arises to compromise these, these principles, we exercise restraint. We say no. Just like with the job of parents with bringing up children. Children don't know how to set their own boundaries and that's why they need to be looked after. If they don't get looked after, they can really get into trouble because the, the, the self-structures have not matured to a level in their consciousness where they're able to actually know how far they can go and be safe. And so it's the job of the parents. When the children push them to a certain point, you say, no. No, you cannot have a whole litre tub of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And so even though the kid might want to just live on Ben and Jerry's ice cream, once they've had a little amount, you just say no. Yeah. Or if uh, he starts clobbering his sister with a heavy wooden toy, you just, you just say no. You know, it's natural for boys to want to clobber their sisters with 
heavy wooden toys. Isn't it? I think it's natural. You know, testosterone does that to blokes. You, know, you go around beating other people up and so on. But you've got to realise that this testosterone, it's, it's, it's dangerous stuff. It's got to be disciplined. It's not bad stuff. Some people think it is, but it's not. Actually, it's just part of being human for men and women. But you've got to exercise discipline. So when the testosterone level starts to get a bit exuberant, you you exercise some discipline and restraint and say no. And so as parents do that with children, hopefully the children grow up knowing where limitations are. Well, we have to take it further in our spiritual practice and also say no to ourselves, to know that the impulse to be greedy, to be selfish, uh, to be conceited, to be unkind... If we cross these boundaries, then they lead to suffering for ourselves and others. And so the result, the effect of cultivating sila, or moral precepts, doesn't just make us agreeable people to have on the planet, that's true, but what it also does is it, it generates a sense of security for ourselves. The world is very insecure and very unsafe, more so now than it's been for a long time probably. Even in the affluent West, it can feel very unsafe and very uncomfortable to be in. Where do we turn for a sense of security? Well, one place we can turn is a sense of self-trust. Again, as a, as a logic, as an argument, as a philosophical argument, it may not sound very impressive, but the experience is wonderful. If we can stop and reflect on our commitment to an impeccability, to integrity, then what comes up is a there's a sense of safety, a sense of security. It's like a, like a psychic boundary is established. You've probably heard me before talk about that example of those two monks from the city of 10,000 Buddhas that went on that bowing pilgrimage up the coast of California. And uh, there was one incident where they were crossing a bridge and they saw this bunch of truckers the other side of the bridge, big, burly, hairy guys with probably more testosterone than they needed, just sort of getting ready, kind of yelling at these guys and you know, these, these two weirdos, shaven heads and their robes, one, two, three paces and then a full-length prostration and then stand up, one, two, three paces and then full-length prostration, stand up. And One of these monks was talking about the movement in his heart of anticipation and a little anxiety. But just being able to restrain the mind, the discipline was such that they could pull the mind back not get caught in anticipation and proliferation. What happens when we get to the other side of the bridge? They weren't at the other side of the bridge, they were at this side, or halfway across. But without restraint, the mind could have easily gotten pulled into anxiety and fear, and then the body gives off a smell when it's afraid. And even if we don't necessarily consciously know it, it does register. But also, I, try, I believe the body gives off a smell, or it gives off signs, it gives us things when it's not afraid. And what happened with these two monks was that they, they, their discipline, their restraint was such that they could come back and just stay with their bowing, stay with their mantra, their chant that they were doing inwardly, and just kept bowing across the bridge, got to the other side. And what happened when they got to the other side? These truckers just fell completely silent and parted and let them through. And they just kept going, just kept going. Not a word was said. Not only that, but the next morning, these big burly guys came out and offered them the meal. <laughs> Now, that's, that's a beautiful, I find, beautiful example of the power of restraint. We can easily um, and mistakenly think that restraint has to be neurotic. And uh, in a country like this where stiff upper lip and British you know, reserve is um, endemic, uh, so restraint has got a bad press. And sometimes there's the temptation to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But a more mindful, wise approach would be just to look at the virtue of restraint and to contemplate and, and reflect for ourselves. What is the, what, when we exercise this strength that we have, what is the result? And, and where, we, where we can spoil it, like also with, um, like with generosity, if, we, if the good feeling, the confidence that comes from keeping moral precepts, it can make you all puffed up and, and obnoxious, goody-goody two-shoes, but uh, that's, that's goodness that's been spoiled. And so if we reflect on it, we can see, well, actually, the goodness is good in itself. How can we build on that? Well, the way we build on it is by letting go. 
So dana and sila work together like that. And then the third aspect of the path, of course, is, is bhavana. And you, know, you can't really say that one aspect is more important than the others. But I think we can say that bhavana is the essence of spiritual practice. The Buddha referred to it as the heartwood, the heartwood of the tree. You know, when you, you've got the bark and then you've got the sapwood and then you've got the different layers until you get to the heartwood. And he, he, the Hartwood Sutta, the discourse he gave, talking about don't let your practice fall short of arriving at the Hartwood, the essence of practice, which is complete liberation. And finding our strengths, finding our abilities, whether it's in the cultivation of loving kindness, or compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, or, or the cultivation of generosity, or keeping moral precepts, you know, cultivating patience, and these strengths that we can build up these are all essential aspects, but the real essence of practice, what all this, all this practice is, is focused on, is the ultimate capacity that we as human beings have to free ourselves from ignorance. Now, the consequence of ignorance, ignorance is something that we, we're all personally intimately familiar with, and and we can look out and see the environment and see what happens when there's a lack of awareness and, and the presence of ignorance. From a practice perspective, what we're asked to do is not just take on a doctrine about how life should be or how other people should be, but rather using our reflective awareness, exercising again our capacity for reflecting inwards, that thing that animals don't have but we do have, other animals don't have, but this animal does. We can use our reflective awareness to consider the consequence of our lack of awareness. What happens when I operate out of selfishness and a commitment to me and my way? There's resistance, there's pain, there's suffering. What happens if I operate out of awareness, free-flowing, unobstructed awareness and responding to the situation as it's presenting itself in the moment. Well, to the degree that I can do that, then I, I feel good, I feel much better. The lack of resistance, lack of stress, lack of suffering. Well, from that place of reflection, not from that place of doctrine, but from that place of reflection, we can give rise to the inspiration, the encouragement to exercise this awareness, to exercise, to cultivate, is what pawana means, Dana sila pawana, the word pawana means bhava, becoming, being, bringing into being, bhavana, bringing into being, to cultivate this awareness, this reflective awareness that we have, so that little by little we, little by little we discover for ourselves at the time it's happening, at the time it's happening, where and how we impose limitations on awareness. But the experience that we're all familiar with of, I can't take it anymore, what is that? If we know how awareness can be and how awareness is free from color, you can't grasp awareness but we can exercise awareness. And, and there's anything, potentially anything can pass through awareness. Anything arise and cease in awareness. But for all of us, we reach a point from time to time where it feels like this is too much. Now, is that really the problem with awareness? Is that a problem inherent in awareness? Or is it not the case that at that point, we are setting some limitations on awareness. Now, I don't want to say that it's this way or that way, but I think we are encouraged in practice to, at that point where we feel like I can't take it anymore, to just not assume the apparent validity of that perception. Again, Sister Tita Mehta beautifully described in her report in this interview um, that I was reading this morning, how um, there were situations she found herself in 
where she noticed a sensation in her stomach come up of, of some sort of energetic feeling of I, I, a sort of craving I-ness. And she caught it one day in a free-feeling way whereby she didn't become it and then become a somebody and start talking was what she was talking about. And, and she realized she didn't have to become the somebody and start talking, but rather she just mindfully, sensitively, just held the awareness on the sensation, the feeling of I am, the feeling of me. Not trying to push it down, not judging it, not trying to analyze it, not thinking about it at all, but just staying with the feeling of me and experiencing the wonderful release of it dissolving. Not becoming something and not repressing it. The two experiences the Buddha talked about, the worldly ways of indulging in grasping and pleasure and indulging in repressing pain. These two ways of becoming. But then the middle way the Buddha talked about is that place in between where we exercise awareness where we're not becoming anything. Not even becoming Buddhists. Somebody was asking me the other day whether becoming a Buddhist was the right thing to do. I said, don't even become a Buddhist. The Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. The Buddha was just aware. That's what the Buddha means, awake. It doesn't mean the name of a new religion. The Buddha just means awake. Mr. Awake. (laughs) The Venerable Awareness, that was his name. And that's our refuge, and that's our commitment, and that's our cultivation. We can do it in everyday life, and it's recommended and encouraged that we do do it in everyday life, being sensitive to the relationships we're in, to the situations we're in, inwardly and outwardly. But also, it's really wise and strongly encouraged that we don't just practice in daily life situations, but we also practice formal meditation. And that's why it's always such a delight when all of you come along here in an evening, or people come on retreat, or so also people come here, just sometimes they turn up in the middle of the day. It's always lovely when I see a car parked out there and there's somebody just sitting here in the Dhamma Hall. And I really wish more and more people in Newcastle would come out and do that. In fact, I have a, I have a plan. We've been discussing it uh, recently about trying to find a way of being more accessible to uh, the people in Newcastle. That We've been here 25 years and and it's wonderful that people come out here, but I still don't feel we have much of a presence in Newcastle. So one of the things I thought about doing was offering a, a six-week course, a beginner's course, in the evening, but for six weeks in a row, and people can sign up and come out here and, and through the six weeks can slowly become more and more familiar and more confident. Because meditation is like, it's a very powerful tool, but we need to learn how to, how to do it properly. Um, it's not just something that you can, all of you I'm sure are familiar with this, you can't just pick it up and suddenly get it right. It's like driving a car. You, you can, if you're not taught properly, you can drive in, in very uncomfortable, energy-extravagant ways. If you're taught, taught properly, then you can drive like our driver Jim here, who, well, occasionally a little improper and going over the speed limit. <laughs> but other than that, he's a, he's a great driver. And, or like chopping wood. If you don't know how to chop wood properly with an axe, and you've got these, we've got these big logs at the back there and a big chopping block, and, and uh, if you don't know how to hold the axe properly, there's, you know, there's a right way to hold the axe, or how to carry an axe. If you don't know how to carry an axe, it's, it's very easy to injure yourself. And if you don't wear proper steel cap boots while you're chopping big logs, and if you're not taught how to properly chop wood, you might think, oh, any old idiot can chop wood. Well, you can... You can put your back out, you can break the axe handle, or even using a hammer. Um, you pick up a hammer, and most people pick up a hammer but right behind the, the head of, the, of the, the steel head there and start banging away. Well, that's not the way to hold a hammer. You can do that, but it'll take a lot more energy to get the nail in. The best way to hold a hammer is right up the other end, the tail, and to learn to get the balance of it, to just to work with it, just to boom, boom. You get your nail in with minimal use of energy and, and, and maximum skill. Well, um, just as with any other practical tool, so meditation technique is the same way. We need to 
we need to be basically uh, spend a lot of time practicing and can benefit from listening and, and spending time with those who've practiced longer uh, than we have. So if any of you have an idea about what might help, I've also thought and been concerned about the fact that you know, we don't ever really go into Newcastle. So there's been talk over the years about starting another Buddhist group, a meditation group in Newcastle. And so that's also um, an option, something that we have been thinking about doing. Maybe a midweek group we would go in every Wednesday or something. And So if any of you have any ideas about this and uh, want to email me and let me know, I'd be pleased to hear but getting back to the subject, the practice of formal meditation, you know, people can get caught in the idea that because the first time they try to sit meditation they can't do it, that they're never going to learn. Well, again, it's like the first time you try to drive a car, you know, and you, <laughs> you got to, putting your foot on the accelerator and taking off the clutch at just the right time, it takes skill. Well, meditation is a skill. But the wonderful thing when you start to develop the skill is you realize the, the strength that you naturally already have to take responsibility for your life. So many of us get around feeling like we're victims of our conditioning. If only I wasn't brought up in this country, if only I was brought up in another country, if only I didn't have these parents, or if only I wasn't born under such and such astrological configuration, or if only I had more vitamin B during my childhood, or, you know, blah, 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 all the things that, if only, uh, the if only disorder that uh, is a, a common disease, well, the disease is curable. That when we discover uh, how to exercise the ability we have to meditate, then we find that it's quite possible to direct attention in a here-and-now, judgment-free, body-mind way and discover for ourselves what is already there. The peacefulness, the clarity, the understanding, ultimately the understanding. We don't have to go out there and read books and think a lot to understand things. The important things in life about how to understand how to be with myself in this moment in a compassionate and clear and kind way how do the ability to be with other people here and now in a compassionate kind and clear way that's worth understanding there's lots of other things that are relatively useful to understand but it's more important to understand how to be with ourselves in a harmonious and happy way that understanding is something that we can cultivate here and now so I hope these things are helpful for you I hope that it goes some way to addressing this question, which was about what it means to unite with Brahma. Um, my understanding of what it might mean is that if we exercise the abilities we have to reflect wisely and direct attention skillfully, then we can discover that we have these strengths within ourselves. We don't have to be a victim to any sense of lacking or going out and trying to find these things outside ourselves. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Andalayam, Namakataya, Sadukaram, Dramatay.